Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. I work with technical professionals so they can present more effectively, especially in front of non-technical audiences. And you can learn more about that at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. If you're watching this video on YouTube, you can always leave a review or a comment. That'd be nice. And if you're listening to the podcast, a review would be nice as well. So today, my guest is Dr. Sarisha Kuchamanchi. She climbed the corporate ladder for years before leaving it behind to start a new journey. She founded Sahita, a global community for South Asian women. She's host of the Women, Career, and Life podcast, a podcast about women and leadership. She's also a radio host. Life Beats with Sarisha is the name of the show. And she's a keynote speaker, too. She does quite a number of things. So I'm really interested to find out how she went, how she got to each of them. So welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Dr. Kuchamanchi. Thank you, Neil. I'm glad to be here. So from the bit of research I did on you, I saw that you studied physics in school. What was the motivation to do that? Well, I come from a strong, uh, I guess, ecosystem, which really had a lot of science around it. And I liked the physics aspect of it because it was very intuitive, logical to think about things. Okay. And technically speaking, my father was a physics professor as well, though I don't know if that completely influenced me or not, but that kind of probably played a thread in it. Oh, okay. Nice. You know, I don't, are you from India originally? Yes. So from what I, I've had other Indian guests on and they told me that there's a, I guess after high school, there's a test that you have to take and that, and based on the, on the score that you, you get on that test, that determines what you study in school. That's right. It is, especially for engineering schools, but I actually skipped taking that test because at that point I realized I didn't want to do engineering. So I didn't even want to give myself the chance to end up in some school. So I didn't take it. I just chose to study physics. From oh, the beginning. Okay. Uh, okay. Those are different for those. Okay. So that's just that's just engineering specific. Engineering or medical school. You often those are the two exams that they have. Okay. Got it. All right. Nice. All right. So then, but then you guys, you ended up doing engineering in, in graduate school. So I'm curious, what made you decide to to go down the engineering path? Yeah. So though it is engineering, I kind of see it as a blend because I went to material science. My master's uh, program that I did research on was more solid state physics and, you know, condensed matter physics, which was very material science oriented. And the more I spent time in classes, I realized it became very theoretical quantum physics, which was a bit more not my stream. So decided to switch to material science, which blends actually a lot of multidisciplines. It's metallurgy, physics, chemistry, all of it together is what really it is. So it's not hardcore engineering in my mind, the same way some of the others are. Excellent. My first degree is in material science and engineering, and I got to it in a probably not the best way. I was actually waitlisted for mechanical engineering, and I didn't want to wait, so they said I could do materials instead. And, and materials, it is <laughs> nice. So we have something in common then. That's indeed, good. indeed, we do. But it sounds like you actually picked it because you wanted to pick it. I picked it because it was what I was offered. Well, sometimes those things do end up at good places. So. We may not know where we want to go, but path leads us there. Yeah, I mean, no, 10 years ago, if you told me I'd be hosting a podcast, I probably wouldn't have believed you. But yeah, here I am. <laughs> True. So you you have these degrees and then it's time to start working. How did your the the degrees that you earned, I guess, and how did that help you or in, in the work that you ended up doing? 
So I started, I did a co-op when I was in graduate school on my research, basically, that I was doing for my master's and PhD program. So that gave me a feel for working in corporate. And I left after my master's program. I had moved to Dallas. So I was looking for a job and I got a job at this company called Applied Materials. It's a semiconductor equipment manufacturer by going to a job fair. You know, those things probably many people don't have experience with now, but it was a physical job fair. And that's how I found it. And it actually meshed really because it was using my technical skills. And uh, it was a very client-facing role. So quite a change from what I was used to. Uh, culturally, just dealing with people because I'd come from India. And graduate school tends to be incredibly diverse. But corporate America doesn't always look the same. So it's kind of a blend of trying to figure out how to navigate that and work with customers. So that's how I ended up in that first role. All right. And then... Obviously, you didn't stay in that first role. You you moved up within companies, probably even changed companies too. Did you end up ever being a manager of people? Yes. Actually, the reason I left that role was I got laid off. So I had to you know, go back in. And the reason I say that is I know a lot of people are experiencing that and it's quite challenging. I mean, I went through it many, many years ago when the environment was quite different. And I ended up contracting in the company that I was working as a client services facing role. And ended up becoming a full-time employee. I've taken a couple of career breaks. I've been a stay-at-home mom for a few years, and then I returned to work. And actually, when I came back is when I started to look for different roles and was more interested in becoming a manager. So I did manage large teams and manage people, like manager of managers and manage teams, engineers, technicians. It's essentially like a director role across the organization, sitting on leadership teams. I'm really interested to learn about you leaving corporate for a while to be to stay at home and then the return back to the workplace. What were the, I guess, were there any challenges that you had to, to deal with to make that return? And if so, what were they? So when I decided to be a stay-at-home mom, there was a reason I had decided because I had a two-year-old. I was expecting my second one. I was going back to school to essentially do a couple of classes to finish my PhD and working. So obviously four four ways was too much to stretch. And I wanted, I, early on, we decided that I was going to probably spend time at home. Coming back, yes, it was hard. It was 2008 downturn. So I, after two years, I went to a job fair. You know, same thing I'd done the first time around. And there were 10 jobs and 1,000 people. And I walked around and realized there is no way I'm going to find a job in this environment. And already material science and stuff is sort of very niche sometimes. It's not easy to find jobs in your sector. It's not like some of the other things, uh, maybe IT or finances, which every organization has, right? But there's some of these are niche. So I started to look for roles. I was interviewing in different organizations. But interestingly, I got a call back from my company that I'd left, actually from the group. Uh, the managers had changed, but asking me if I wanted to come back. So I went through the whole interview process and got hired back. So in essence, I, I think when people work, they we don't realize the sort of trail of... Um, breadcrumbs that we leave behind and what people you know form opinions of us because both times I came back to corporate America after layoff and being a stay-at-home mom was where I was called and asked if I wanted to come back to work though I still interviewed and everything but it was that way that it worked so I think networking is very important for people to think about building those strong networks when they're working don't just be very pigeonholed and focused on just doing your job but do your job with working with people in an ecosystem <laughs> you know, you're absolutely right about that. And I think a lot of people, especially now, are are understanding that. 
perhaps they were working at these jobs for years and then unceremoniously are laid off and they weren't taking the time to build those networks. And now they're on Indeed with 20-something year olds applying for jobs. And then you would have thought, you know, you're 50-something years old. You would have built a, a network by now. But the fact that you're there and it's kind of it's kind of sad. And hopefully it's a wake-up call for people that, hey, if, if you're in this situation now, don't let yourself be in that situation again. Build networks, especially when you don't need them. Yes, very true. And when I was doing this, first of all, I didn't know what network meant or mentor meant at that point that it happened. You know, those terms were not familiar and LinkedIn didn't exist. I think LinkedIn came much later, but LinkedIn gives you the advantage now of building and sort of keeping it alive. Right. But it's just working with people. So everyone I've worked with in these groups, I'd worked with them on teams or worked solving problems together. Right. That's how we remember someone. And the other sort of fallacy that we have is oftentimes when someone sees you many years later, if they haven't interacted with you in between, their impression of you is kind of locked at that stage in life. So, you know, we all leave. It's it's like any relationship we build. Right. Everyone like how you interact with your parents or your friends. There's a certain memory lock with it. So it's it's interesting because the person who called me back for the role was someone I had barely, at least in my mind, I had barely interacted with because I was a young engineer. He was a senior team leader and I didn't know he he knew who I was. So I, I found through corporate that oftentimes people who recommend you for a role or who might vouch for you are not the people you know or you expect them to vouch for you. But there are people around your ecosystem who who see you. You know, and it, it's, it happened in my own case where I might watch for someone that I don't directly interact with because I've seen how they work. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to get back to you being a, a manager of people. What are what's well, I guess one thing that you really liked about it and one thing that you didn't like as much about it. You know, if the first time I chose to sort of put my name in the hat for a manager, it was an intimidating proposition because the two things in my mind that I thought would be the most hard is. I always thought managers always came up with these wonderful ideas and, you know, people issues. I think that's what scares most people. What I liked is actually the interaction, uh, you know, empowering the teams, working with the teams, hearing their inputs and working together and being a cohesive group as we move forward. The challenging part always of being a manager is to just manage all the resources and the times and being able to communicate up and communicate down. I don't think there's a part of the job that I dislike. There are a lot of moving parts. So you're constantly evolving and changing and you have to find partners to work with because that's what I guess gives you the opportunity to grow and your team to grow. I At least this is my way of looking at being a manager, I usually want to walk myself out of the job by getting the team strong enough that they can perform without me in it. Because the thing that I think many of us think of is we want to be indispensable. But the problem if you're indispensable is you'll actually likely not get promoted because no one knows who to replace you with either. So it's it's kind of like a balance that you have to think about when you're doing that because you, if you go up the ladder, they want to see who you're growing with you. It cannot just be yourself. So your team has to grow as well. And because they want people investment and followership and other aspects of it, if you're looking to grow up in corporate. What do you think about leaders being vulnerable with their direct reports? Do you think that's something that they should they should do or maybe not do? In some In some ways, yes. You know, when people talk about vulnerability and authenticity, Yes, up to a point, but I have to be honest, it is still a corporate environment. I do not, in personally, will not bring all of my personal life to corporate, right? As much as I'm me and myself, 
there are certain aspects I do not want to bring to work. I, I do want some boundary of separation, but it does help to bring. So during COVID, this is what I used to do with my team. Because it was virtual, I had more than 50% of my team on board during that time, you know, people moving in and out. And we would have a monthly session where someone would talk about where they were from or something they liked. It could be the country they grew up in or the cuisine they liked or something. So it brought out different aspects of our and we played these sort of, um, you know, once a quarter, once in six months, these games just to have fun could be like a Jeopardy or something. So vulnerability can be in so many aspects, right? Because that time you're talking about something you liked about or you're curious about the other person. When you're invested in your team, the people around you, your collaborations as people, not just something you want out of them. I think that helps. And going back to sort of, I, I it's not networking in a way, but it is also you need to invest in these relationships, just as you said, when you don't need them. Because when crisis is hit and when things are boiling over, it's you, you. It's very hard to get engagement at that time because tempers are afraid, everyone's kind of stressed out. But if you've already leaned in and built a lot of those networks, even if not with everybody, you know, someone they can get vouch for you, then you get collaboration and people to do. So oftentimes when I work, you know, I work to customer facing roles. So, you know, when there's a crisis or something getting over I could usually pick up the phone and call someone. And if I didn't know someone, I could ask somebody else, you know, for a connection or just say, hey, I know this person. So there's someone to sort of give you that credibility to have the discussion. I think it really helps because it just, the problem resolutions, this struck me very early on as, as an engineer. There's a problem I was trying to solve and I thought it was going to take me like, you know, four to six months to figure this problem out. And then one day I was walking down the hallway and talking to the senior engineer and he's like, oh yeah, this is what happens. You know, this is what, and I was like, four hours later, it was like easy. And I'm like, man, if you're not talking to the people around you, you could just be buried in this thing. While if you hit upon the right person, the solution comes so much quicker. Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, you're probably wondering, what, why is this guy asking me about vulnerability? <laughs> What's that got to do with anything? Well, it actually, it stemmed from conversations that I've had with other managers of people and I've done some readings and looking at YouTube videos, and there are many people that talk about the importance of vulnerability within leaders. And it just got me thinking, well, I guess, who are they talking to? I mean, there certainly could be people who are, they like their leaders to be vulnerable because they it'll make them seem closer to the direct reports. But then there might be some direct reports thinking, why is this guy telling me all his business? I just came here to do my job. But but I guess it, it all has to come. It all comes down to the personalities of the people that you're leading, how much of that vulnerability that you share. But your answer was really interesting. I think you're the first person that said, that, well, actually, there's some boundaries here. <laughs> I'm not going to be sharing everything about me in the workplace. And, and you're right about the this whole idea of bringing your authentic self to work. I've always, whenever I hear that term, I'm always curious as to what people actually mean by that. Is it just, I, I should be able to share whatever I want with, with these people and they have to accept it because it's my authentic self. But I mean, as, as you said, also it's a corporate environment and we act differently based on the environments we're in. The, the example I often think of is with my mom. My mother doesn't like it when I curse. So I don't curse around her, but I curse around my friends because they don't mind it. So does that mean that in one of those instances, I'm not being my authentic self? I I, I would think so. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't think so. It's just that you 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 modify your behavior based on the environment you're in. And just that's just part of being an adult. Yes, very true. And the way I, I guess the other way to look at vulnerability and authentic self is in the, in the end, the people who are working with you, who are working for you in a way, if you're a manager or a leader is, do they trust you and do they believe in you? 
And do they believe in your message? And are they going to come along with it? Because they believe whether you're telling it's going well, not going well, and you're sharing as much as you can, because obviously there might be confidentiality. That's where it comes, right? And that's how I look at it. Do they trust you and this thing? Because even within my own team, you know, people come and tell me things and there are there there are safe spaces. When I have conversations with them, they come and share things either about their personal life or professional life. And I tell them this is a safe space. And I intend to keep the confidentiality when I tell you that. I am not going to tell my boss certain things because you've come and told me this. And I establish those boundaries beforehand and I keep to those because that is what it is about. Because in the end, we go to work for, of course, earning a paycheck, but to feel fulfilled, we spend a lot of time there. So I have to feel good about it. And I think that to me is creating that environment and that space of, you know, they're talking about employee retention and quiet quitting. And there's a lot of stress at any corporate job, but how do you work with the people around you and how do you make them feel valued? I think that's really what it boils down to. Yeah, I I, I agree. And, and kudos to people like you who are willing to listen to the the issues that other people that work at the company have. I realized pretty early on, I, I don't think I had the empathy for it. So maybe maybe being a manager of people wasn't for me. And, and, and I certainly ended up being the case. So at some point you decide to leave corporate America. What was your motivation to do so? I started a podcast about two years ago in 2020, 2021. And it was around women and leadership. Basically, the reason for starting it was seeing around me and not just in my own organization, but conversations around with a lot of family and friends and others is there are a lot of questions women have, you know, women struggle to grow up the corporate ladder. And I felt like we didn't have a space to ask all the questions we wanted. So I wanted a sort of a platform to talk about it. And that's why I started the podcast. And the reason I come to talk about the podcast is, you know, last year I took two months off and uh, stepped away from work and took a vacation. So my team managed everything. So when I was talking about, you know, empowering your team, that my team totally stepped up to do everything. It was wonderful. And coming back, I was working corporate. I was doing my podcast and I had all these other ideas brewing and I have children who are going off to college soon. And I realized I didn't have time. For me, time became the biggest constraint. And I realized I had to, just like my sort of stay-at-home decision before, I had to decide where I wanted to spend time and realized if I spent time climbing the ladder, which I was very interested, invested in, it would take away time from all the other pursuits. And I, whatever job I did, I did wanted to do it well. So I wasn't willing to compromise on sort of how it was done. So I decided to step away from corporate and really spend time on working on what I was interested in and spending some time at home as well so that I could just balance things as well now. Is there anything that the company could have done to keep you? I... Don't think so. I think they they were very nice about it. I mean, my managers and, you know, leaders were very appreciative, very invested and, you know, gave me opportunities as well. If I had got, a, you know, sort of the next role, I would have probably enjoyed it. But I think but it's sort of it's the timing of things, right? Maybe if it had happened like a few years earlier, I, you know, maybe before my podcast and sort of the other ideas that came forth later, like a year and a half later. Maybe I'd have stayed, but it it's not about that. I don't think the leaders could have done anything. I think I was just in a different time frame of mind by then. So it in in my mind, I always had a debt. Sort of this, you know, virtual retirement just sounded nice. Um, it's just that I pulled the trigger much, much earlier than I had planned. 
which which is fine with me because I think the timing of it is now because if I wait a few years, I may not be able to do the things I want to do. Got it. You know, I mentioned in the intro that you founded Sahita. So I'm kind of curious, what prompted you to do that? Because the discussions that I have, so for me, I my interest is in empowering and educating women to invest in their career and financial future. And a lot of the discussions that I have around with people is we work our roles, but we don't always take the time to invest in our financial future. And our financial future is also very tied to our corporate future. Are you negotiating for your raise? Are you negotiating for the promotion? Are you negotiating for the stretch role? So that's where the career discussion comes up. But then when you look at the financial piece, are you familiar with your own finances? Because very often, um, maybe not often, but so quite quite many times, you know, someone's partner or spouse is often managing their money, which is fine. But I think you need to know where and what is happening because life happens and crises, just like I was talking about at work, are not the time to go figure something out because finances just generally tend to stress every one of us out. And it's something that, you know, I just needed to learn for my own sake because I maybe in some ways I want to have some control over what I'm doing. I wouldn't have quit corporate America if I didn't manage my money. I can clearly tell you that. If I didn't know what was happening as a calculated risk, I would not quit it. So I think we take away our power by not looking at this big piece because if we knew what our picture looked like, we might make different decisions. And you may not choose to, but I think it gives you the opportunity to make different choices. So you know, knowing where your money is, learning some basic investing. It doesn't have to be incredibly complicated. I mean, all these people manage homes, households, businesses, everything, right? So we know how to do it. It's just sort of that, um, I think we all have, very often, I think money has a sort of sort of emotional, you know, fearful component of it for us to think about managing it. So sort of putting those aside and saying, hey, I can do this. It, it's not complicated math. It's, it's executive basic math. So just figuring out how to do that. And there's a story, a um, couple of stories that that struck me as I was doing this, because I had a friend who came to the U.S. in her 20s until her mid-30s hadn't heard about retirement funds, because we don't talk about it, right? How many of us talk about money with our friends or family? It's just sort of this topic that never comes up or very often is a taboo subject. And I'm thinking that's 10 years of loss of investing income, which is huge because compound interest just adds up. And, and the other sort of instances. I have this really good friend who always thought she needed this huge number to retire. She works this really wonderful job, quite stressful though. And we would meet often and this conversation happened, you know, many, many months over a year. And one day at lunch, we were like, finally, I was like, okay, you need to run your numbers. For me, I think everyone needs to know where their net worth is. No matter what age you are, you need to know your pluses and minus and what your bucket holds. And told her, hey, run your retirement numbers because every, you know, investment company has some calculator that you can run very easily and once she 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 thought she needed some x amount of dollars and you know i knew how much she had in investment because we talked about it and so i told her call me back in an hour and tell me how much you need and she texted me back and she said oh i only need 25 percent x so a quarter of what she thought she needed so she already had the money so now she's choosing to work because she likes the job and it's a choice right anything else beyond that um, even if she doesn't like it, it's a choice she's making. She doesn't at least have that sort of nagging fear I think most of us have around, hey, how much money do I have? Am I, am I secure? And I realize that no matter, uh, it happens often is whichever stage of life people are or however high they may be in the ladder, I think there is that nagging fear often for us. 
You'd also, I'd also mentioned in the intro that you're a keynote speaker. What do you typically speak about? So I speak to leaders around growing teams, you know, retention, burnout, all of the things about engaging teams and building high-performance teams. I also talk to organizations about feedback, financial independence, and universities and stuff about how do you invest in your Think about it for new students. How do you get into the corporate ladder and be successful? How do you look at graduate school and beyond? You know, because when you get into grad school, it sort of narrows your field. But how do you open those doors wide open to give yourself opportunities? So it's about people investing in their career. If you go back, like being feedback, you know, how do you get investor in growing these teams, like I said? So it's very corporate leadership advice. But also some of it is that and some of it is also very women centric on how do you advocate for yourself in the workplace. Okay. Have you always been good at, at speaking in front of others? And if not, what do you do to get better at it? I actually have this video cassette if it works, if I find a cassette player somewhere of my first grad school talk. I don't think it was very good. I think it was quite bad. Actually, in the beginning when I used to talk, because... I tend to speak fast. And if I'm speaking fast, this is not fast for me. Um, it's usually I would swallow half my words and I would write out a script and practice, but only deliver maybe two thirds of it because in my mind, it was very self-evident. So I would just run through a talk really fast and they were not really very good. You know, presenting, it doesn't come naturally. I I think over time, just, you know, getting in front of audiences and stuff. So one of the big things I did was I did a panel discussion at work. You know, they had this women's ERG and they were looking for someone to moderate a panel. And I knew my colleague who was doing it and she was just talking about it. And she said, hey, do you want to do it? I said, sure, I'll try. And I spent time talking to people who I knew moderated panels, researching online, uh, even talking to my HR partners because I was interviewing very senior leaders. And, you know, everyone has sort of different feedback. Some say, oh, you shouldn't give your opinion. Some said you should give your opinion. So I didn't know what to do. But the way I speak is I almost never look at my slides. I I talk without looking at it. So that whole 45-minute panel that I did from introduction to end, I didn't have any sheets of paper or anything. It's Yes, I do practice it. It's, it's not like I'm memorizing it, but I know what I want to say. And I didn't realize how well it went till... I had people stopping by my office telling me, oh, this was really good. People I didn't know and talking about how they, because they watch a lot of people speak and how it was. And I was like, oh, this is not so bad, but it takes practice. And even for my podcast, I have my first recording somewhere, which obviously I didn't release. But when I was, uh, you know, me and a friend were trying to work through it, we would record. It, it took a few months before I even released the first episode because we would listen to it and see what are we saying. We realized we were using some words all the time. You know, the um pauses, the er uh pauses, a lot of things of how we were delivering because when you ask someone a question, you tend to repeat the same words. Yes, yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, sort of these sort of keywords and just being very intentional about how we speak about it, taking notes, how we want it. So it comes with practice and Think of it like an interview. I tell, because I talk to a lot of young people, I tell them, record yourself, do a video interview, ask someone to ask you questions and watch it. Because then you'll realize how you sound. And you have to be, speak out or in front of a mirror or something. If you speak in your head, everything comes out beautifully. It just doesn't deliver out of your mouth that way. 
<laughs> that, that's funny. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're we're all geniuses in our head. <laughs> let let them let them words come out and, and see what happens. For the people who are are listening or, or watching this conversation, Dr. Kuchimanchi, what would be your number one tip for them if they want to get better at speaking in front of others? Take every opportunity you get, you know, talk to your friends. First of all, um, see if you're comfortable speaking because we are comfortable in different settings. I, you may be great speaker with your friend, but you may not feel comfortable getting in front of a big audience. So I don't know if this works, but I think it does. So there's Amy Cuddy's TED Talk, you know, about power poses, how you stand in a position. For me, psychologically, I have to tell you it helps. I used to do it in the beginning. I, I don't know if that had an impact on it. So when I used to have big talks at work in the beginning, like in front of big managers, when I became a manager early on, I would take a few minutes to think about it and do it. After that, it sort of came naturally because in some ways, what it is, is it's confidence building, right? You're saying, I can do this. I am good at it. Don't worry because all of us know what we know. No one else can present what we know from our viewpoint, from our voice, from the way we say it. But to whoever is presenting, I'd say practice. You, you don't have to know all the slides like I said, like I do, but be sure not to read a slide, face the audience and talk to them and start with a hook. I am not always great at doing this, but having pauses, you know, having a hook, having stories is what connects because technical points, even if you're presenting a corporate thing, yes, you have data, but the data has to tell a story. So because people are going to remember the story. Not that this data was 2.3% and that was 5.7%. Yes, they will remember that. But in context of, hey, this, you know, um, wear and tear of the equipment goes down because this helps or, you know, this doesn't give ergo issues to an employee. Whatever, some story that connects the people to the story, I think is what sticks in people's mind. Yeah, I agree with you about the, using stories and also not reading slides. I mean, ultimately, it's public speaking, not public reading. I mean, if you if you if I if you could read the slides, I could read the slides too. I probably could read them quicker than you can. And, and then Actually, if that's the case, why are you here? <laughs> exactly. And the less said in the slides, the better. Have more pictures, two, three bullet points, because then it gives you the flexibility to fill in the story based on how people are interacting. You know, virtual does give give some little pause around it, right? It makes it a bit harder. But when you're speaking in front of an audience, face to face, you watch the people around you and you see how you're reacting and you'll adapt it to that. They're getting bored. They don't seem interested. I mean, some people might be distracted for various reasons, but feeding off that, I think, gives you the adaptability. So don't put everything on your slide because it's too dense. There, there is this PowerPoint, I think, by death by PowerPoint or something like that. For those who create slides, watch that video because it'll give you ideas on font size and how to look at a slide. Yeah, absolutely. So this has been a really great conversation, Dr. Kuchamanchi. Thank you so much for being a guest. How can people get in touch with you? The best part of way is to, you know, go and look at my LinkedIn, Kuchimanchi Sirisha. Um, and also you can check out my website as well. Sirisha Kuchimanchi, look it up if you are interested in me coming to talk at your university, partnering with me with corporate or in your businesses. That is the best way for us to work together. So they can check out my LinkedIn profile, which I suppose you put in your show notes and that way they can connect with me. Excellent. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. I work with technical professionals so they can present more effectively, especially in front of non-technical audiences. And you can learn more about that at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Dr. Kuchimanchi. Thank you, Neil. 
Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms. We're on all of them. Also, if you prefer to watch the episodes, head on over to the YouTube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com. Until next time.